Welcome. You are about to enter the Wooniverse. In five, four, three, two, one. Transport complete. Come inside a mystical, magical portal between worlds. It's all good, it's all God, it's all magic, it's all sacred, it's all quantum, it's all. Where playful curiosity leads the way and beyond. It's like inside of each of us is an ember, and I believe in the ember that remembers that place. You won't believe the ahas that come up in every single conversation. It just becomes easier to experience the positive because of how kindness feels. I can't wait to explore this enchanting space with you. Would you say, not to use the G word, but maybe we can, like, how has it helped you experience God? Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast coming to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine. Hi, everybody. I'm Colette Baron-Reed. Thank you so much for joining us today on Inside the Wooniverse. Joining us today is one of my most favorite human beings on the planet, Greg Braden. He is a five-time New York Times bestselling author. He has 19 or 20 books and audio. I don't even have all of them here, but I'll tell you which books changed my life. And that was The Divine Matrix, Spontaneous Healing of Belief, Fractal Time. Actually, there's all of his books changed my life. I've actually read every single thing he's ever written, just so you know. And the latest book he did was called The Wisdom Codes, and I have now read this three times. Hence why I have invited Greg on the show. Now, he is also a very, very amazing scientist, educator, and he's a pioneer in the emerging paradigm-bridging science, social policy, and human potential. And guess what? He is also a beautiful musician. Seriously, we are so fortunate to have Greg Braden here. Welcome, Greg. Colette, I am so excited. I'm so honored to be with you. I'm excited. You're my first podcast of 2022. It's the first time I've seen you for a really long time. I know. I um, I miss you. I'm excited. My sense is our time's going to go quickly, and I'm I'm just going to follow your lead today and see where we go in the Wooniverse. Oh, in the Wooniverse. Awesome. This is great. Now, I know you have so much really interesting stuff to talk about, especially the things that you're working on now. But before we jump into your exciting work around our human origins, can we talk about Greg Braden's origin story? How did you get into this? Were you always interested in science and spirituality? Tell us that story. You grew up in the Midwest, right? I don't know how far back you want to go, but I'll, I'll just <laughs> when I'll did share. This start? I'll share <laughs> yeah, a little foundation. I uh, And I share this with my, my live audiences. I'm the product of a very dysfunctional alcoholic family uh, in the Midwest, uh, 1950s those experiences were treated very differently than they are today. We didn't have the the resources for healthy resolution for dysfunctional families. And um, my father was the abuser. Uh, he left when I was 10. And my mother and my younger brother and I were thrust into a, a very new world of survival. Uh, we had no money, low-income, government-subsidized housing, we were in a neighborhood mostly with single families. We moved every every year. I went to a different school every year. And uh, it helped me to learn how to communicate with people because I had to. I had to make new friends every year. And I turned to the, the two things that gave me safety and comfort, and that was science, music, 
and nature. I guess those are three things, but the science is the science and nature kind of go together. Uh-huh. So I, I began studying science at a really early age because it gave me a something solid. There was something solid that I could use to help make sense of the world. Something certain. Yeah, right? absolutely. Science has certainty in it. Well, it does. You know, in science, back in the 50s and 60s, it was revered in a way that has been lost today. Today, in large part, science has been hijacked by corporations, religion, politics, mm-hmm. business, and the messages of science have been skewed to support very specific agendas. Back in those days, people get up at three o'clock in the morning to watch a space launch from Cape Kennedy, you know, wow. at that time, or Cape Canaveral, actually, at that time. And, and National Geographic was coming out with these discoveries of, uh, of Lucy and Australopithecus from the Louis Leakey and his family at the Olduvai Gorge, you know, in Africa and Tanzania. So it was a, a different world. So I was drawn immediately to, to both of those. And they both played a powerful role in my life. When my father left, I left home at a very early age and moved in with my rock and roll band. <laughs> so I was 14 and they were all in their 20s and 30s living lives of tremendous excess. <laughs> and I've always been blessed, Colette, and I think this is part of the conversation today. I've been blessed with what I would call a really strong soul compass because I was around the excess, but I never bought into the excess. I didn't do the drugs. I loved the music. I just didn't like the music lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it served me really well to to not be pressured by my peers into doing things just because they wanted me to do them. And that goes with society today. You know, I'm, I'm in the same boat today. So there was a pivotal moment uh, in my life when I knew that I wanted to contribute to the world in some way to make the world a better place and in whatever way I could. And two events happened. One, I went to my first rock concert. It was Jefferson Airplane. Oh, wow. I sat on the front row and told Grace Slick, the lead singer, how much I loved her. She completely blew me off, discounted me. <laughs> but here's 14. the thing. Yeah. <laughs> you were 14, okay. <laughs> I remember it very, it was a Memorial Hall in Kansas City, Kansas is where this was. <laughs> And But here's the thing. I looked around that hall, and at that time, there were about 30,000 people in that room, and they were moved by what was happening with a few people on that stage. And I recognized that, but I also recognized, Colette, that when they left the concert, they needed something outside of themselves to recreate the feeling. They had to buy an eight-track tape, you know, or, right. or a, vinyl, a vinyl album. At the same time, I also witnessed a, a talk by a man named Billy Graham. And I wasn't so much into the message, but I was moved in a stadium, 70,000 people mm-hmm. in that stadium. When he spoke, something changed inside of them. And here's the, here's the difference. When they left, they didn't need a tape or an album because something had changed inside of them. Mm-hmm. He had given them something to shift their belief systems and their perspective on the world and about themselves. And I said, there's got to be a way to combine these. And I've I've searched my whole life. Uh, I'm still a musician. I, I put that on the back burner a little bit. But there's something so powerful if we can find the right words and touch people's hearts and their minds and their souls and honor them with the deep truth of their existence one that the truth, when the facts are clear, our choices become obvious. And, and people typically don't need to be told something or live a certain way because it, it's obvious. 
So I've dedicated the bulk of my adult life to sharing a message, but it's a message based in what science has now revealed uh, about who we are, where we come from, uh, what our capabilities, what our potential is within ourselves and with the world around us. And I, I continue to do that today, yeah. This is amazing because it reminds me so much about how you work with your audiences, like what you describe, both with watching the band, feeling the feeling, and then seeing Billy Graham. I have seen you so many times on stage and you create that. And now all your research on heart coherence, uh, you know, th I just wanted to bring that up because what you're describing is the thing that you are now talking a lot about in your work. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is, Colette. So can I bring part of the story full yes, circle? Are you let's okay? bring it full circle, 100%. So Grace Slick of the Jefferson Airplane went through a period in her life of uh, rehab. And she and her daughter now run an art gallery in South Florida. And I had the opportunity to go to the art gallery. And we share a common publicist. Oh, wow. And I told my publicist this story. And my publicist shared it with Grace Slick. <laughs> so I, I had the opportunity to, to meet her. And um, I didn't tell her I loved her, but I told her I loved her, her music and how, how powerful it was. And we, we did. We got to meet in her gallery at, in the Palm Beach area. I shared with her what her music meant to me mm -hmm. at a very early age. And, uh, and it was good for her to hear that because I, I think it was a difficult time in her life as well. She's an amazing artist, by the way. She, oh, wow. um, her gallery is full of all of the heroes, Jerry Garcia, Mick Jagger, Jimi Hendrix, you know, everybody. Then she, she really is an amazing artist. So just want to bring that full yeah, circle. Yeah, I love that full circle moment, especially if did you, I hope she gave you a hug. We did that. That's good. And, uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I can't talk about it a lot, but yeah. No, we, that's we, we fine. Did that. We don't need to go into detail. So what I would really love to talk about, you know, you devoted yourself to the scientific uh, study and research, et cetera, but you are most known for bridging science and spirituality. Those two things go together. So where did that, that start coming in for you? You know, what I realized very quickly was that we in the Western world, we've compartmentalized nature into these little boxes that we study so that we are comfortable with the study. So we call those little boxes things like chemistry and biology and geology and cosmology. But the truth is nature doesn't know where one box ends and the next box begins. Nature is just nature. And uh, I had the, the opportunity, and I've been very blessed and privileged to travel to some of the most isolated and remote and pristine and magnificent and beautiful places remaining on the earth today from the highlands of central China and Tibet to Nepal and India and all through the Andes Mountains and the, you know, the mountains of Egypt and be with the people that live the traditions that they have preserved for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. And what I found, Colette, is that we are the anomaly. We in the West, although there are a lot of us, mm -hmm. the way that we think about our relationship to the world and even our origin is an anomaly almost universally. The indigenous and the ancient traditions, they don't separate the world into those little boxes. There is a world out there and we are part of, not separate from that world. And they don't separate science from spirituality. They don't separate the knowledge of how things work from the application in their lives. And what they do is they have devoted their lives to understanding how to apply the deep relationships 
to have better lives and stronger families and stronger communities. Whereas science, I'm just going to give you an example mm -hmm. to, to help clarify this. Science is said to have begun about 300 years ago during the time of Isaac Newton when he formalized the laws of physics. For 300 years, science has been trying to prove whether or not we are separate from the world around us or if there's a field of energy that connects all things. Only recently have scientists arrived at the understanding now that there is in fact a field of energy that underlies all existence and we are deeply connected and entangled is one of the, the terms that, that they use. To contrast that, our indigenous ancestors for 5,000 years, Colette, they began with the assumption. They said, of course, everything's connected. And rather than trying to prove the connection, they explored how they can apply it in their lives, how, how they can benefit from it, how they can access that field. So this is where many of the, the prayers and the meditations and the traditions have, have come from. So I think there is a place where we, in my personal opinion, I believe we owe it to ourselves to honor the wisdom of our past mm -hmm. uh, and not discount it because it was not done using the scientific method. But we're living in a world today, Colette, we've never seen before. The world changed. It's never going back to the world that we've known in the past. It's changing faster than we've ever seen in a single generation. Emotionally, psychologically, mentally, spiritually, we are trying to keep up and make sense and not just survive, but thrive in the change. And to do that, I believe that we have everything we need. I also believe it's necessary to draw from the wisdom of 5,000 years of human experience and marry that with the best science of the modern world and weave these together into a way of knowing that's more than the spirituality and it's more than the science mm -hmm. because the science doesn't have all the answers. And honestly, the spirituality can tell us how to apply it, but it can't tell us the nuts and bolts of how it works. Science can tell us the nuts and bolts, but they can't always tell us what to do with that. So, so scientists now, I was at the CERN Superconducting Super Collider in Geneva, Switzerland before uh, COVID. Wow. And, here's what, and this is where they confirmed there's a field that underlies all existence. And here's what the scientists are saying. I'm just going to paraphrase. They said, okay, there's a field out there. What do we do with it? And so this is a perfect example of where the scientific community can benefit from the wisdom of our indigenous ancestors because they've, they know what to do with that field, but they don't always know the nuts and bolts of, of why it works and how it works. They don't need to. Let me ask you a question here. So we know that there's a field. Would we say, because post-materialist science talks about consciousness as being fundamental. So when they say, what do we do with it? Is that still the materialist perspective of, of looking at only as the nuts and the bolts without the spirit of it? You know what I'm saying? It's like, is that why you're bringing the two together? <laughs> I'll answer it in this way. I was at a conference, a number of conferences before COVID where scientists on the stage were talking about this field. So the good news is, it exists and there no longer is any controversy as right. to whether the field exists. They're on board with that. But right. look at what happens. When they're on that stage behind the microphone, the scientists will say, there's a field out there that connects all right. things. And their hands, are, their hands are moving <laughs> away from them. It's out there. The reality is that the average human, whatever average is, we've got about 50 trillion or so cells in our body. 
Every one of those cells is made up of over 100 trillion atoms, and those atoms are constantly emerging and collapsing into this field. So literally, this isn't a metaphor, we are the field. Yeah. It's not out there, and it's not even in here. It is us. We are little wrinkles in the field, the disturbances that consciousness holds in place as this physical body. We are the field. And, and once we really grok what that means, it means that we don't have to work to achieve access to the field. Mm -hmm. It means that the choices we make every moment and every day of our lives are rippling an impact, sometimes to a lesser degree, sometimes to a greater degree, through that field. It has to because we are the field. And the good news is that because those atoms are constantly emerging and collapsing, we are malleable. Right. We are not fixed. We're not set in stone. And this gives us the opportunity to upgrade and upregulate our body, our health, our organs, our relationships, all through choices we make that are being reflected in what we call consciousness. Now, the big controversy now is here's what they say. The scientists say there's a consciousness out there <laughs> you know, that connects all things. And what the, the research is showing is that consciousness is what underlies all existence. The plants behind you have consciousness. The rocks, and I'm in the high desert of northern New Mexico outside of Santa Fe. My desert mountains, the sand, the rocks, they have consciousness. It's a different consciousness but everything is, is conscious. You know, I just uh, did a presentation uh, in Boulder, Colorado last week, and I shared a quote from a physicist who was trying to share with the world how physics is changing. And what he said is that in the old way of thinking, the universe, we're told, when I was in school of 50s and 60s, I was told that I'm the product of a dead universe, inert universe, a primal release of energy, mm -hmm. the Big Bang, and really lucky physics led to really lucky biology that led to us. Right. The new physics says the evidence doesn't support that story. The new physics says the universe appears to be alive. Right. It behaves as a living organism. For example, when a star collapses or explodes in one part of the universe, other parts of the universe will compensate for that shift as you would expect a living a living being. And his name is Gregory Matloff. And what Gregory Matloff said, he's a physicist, he said that stars actually may be conscious and thinking entities, which is a very different way of thinking. He said there's a universal consciousness, he said, that may pervade throughout the universe. And, and this is a very different way for physicists to think. And, and let me just share the reason why, and this is important in our society, because if we believe that we're the product of a dead inner universe and lucky physics, it gives us permission to exploit and to dominate right. the resources of our planet. And that thinking now, Colette, we're taking to the moon. We want to exploit the moon for minerals. We want to land on asteroids. We're going to Mars with that same mindset, and we're going to do the same thing to those places that we've done to our planet unless our thinking changes. But here's where it gets really interesting and then it'll lead into, I know what we're going to do. Because the same thing is happening when it comes to us. We were taught that we're the product of random mutations, you know, purely lucky biology and the competition and conflict 
allowed us to survive. We, what are called anatomically modern humans, where other species died out. That thinking gives us permission to exploit the human body, to dominate mm-hmm. the human body. And it says that we are given the power to give life and to take away life because it was all lucky biology anyway. There's no specialness in that. But the new discoveries are showing, and this is what some of the more recent books are about, Darwin's theory of evolution is not and cannot be the story that explains our origin for the simple reason that the evidence no longer supports it. The physical evidence, the archaeological evidence, the paleontological evidence, the genetic evidence, and now the cosmological evidence no longer support that story. So science is struggling. Their story is changing, and there's a reluctance to embrace the new story. We ask science to tell us who we are. Science is doing it. And now people are pushing back on the answers that science is giving. Do you think though that's because of the the structure of what's been built now around corporations and you know the money part, right? So I know I've heard that certain uh, professors, for example, in universities don't want to speak about certain things because they're going to lose their funding or researchers because they only get so much sure. money to fund certain things. There's There's a lack of democracy, I guess, around that because there's an agenda there. But sure. more and more, because I know you, you're part of that whole manifesto for post-materialist science, so you're part of that whole thing too, right? Where everybody got together, said, no, consciousness is fundamental and now we have to go from here, which means that the choices that we make should include the inclusive view that we are the field, that everything is there, which scientists like you and teachers like you are actually showing us and your partner, Nassim Haramein, and others. So if you were to look at this now, the way the way you are, so what would be our origins, for example? Like, this is where I'm getting with this. Like, wh- so what are they scared of? Are they scared because we might have come from the stars? <laughs> well, this is, it's a really good question. You know, I was asked in a, a recent radio interview, if the scientific community knows that what we are teaching in our classrooms is based upon the false assumptions of an obsolete science, which is, that's exactly what's happening right now. We're teaching our young people the false assumptions that led to the problems we have in the world today, and now we're asking a new generation to solve the problems we left with the same thinking that created the problems. And so they say, if if we know that, why aren't we teaching the new things? And the, the real simple answer, four words, it's money, power, ego, and habit. And I'll give you an example. Right. Uh, I have, I'm old enough now, I've got friends in academia who've been teaching 40 years. And I ask one of my friends, who is my friend until we have this conversation? <laughs> and then, then we take a, a pause for a few weeks. <laughs> uh-huh. I say, why can't you share these discoveries with your young people. And I'm not saying to toss out the old ideas. No, I know. Honor our young people with everything. Give them Darwin's theories. Give them new science. Let them know that science does not have all the answers yet. And I'll tell you what, if you want to light a spark in the intellect of a young person, tell them that there's a mystery that has not yet been solved. And they will, I've done this in the classroom. And those young people, we, we've done pilot programs with second graders, eight and nine years old, with middle school, with high school. And all of them, if you say, we don't know who we are, where we come from, their eyes light up and they say, ah, maybe I can be the one right. 
to discover that. So what my, my friend says to me, he says, Greg, you don't understand. He said, if I teach the new discoveries, it invalidates my 40-year career as an educator. Right. And I said, I said, no. I said, what you do is you validate the power of science because science is constantly being upgraded with new discoveries. It is not a static story. It's, it's a dynamic story. Right? Yeah. Science is an experiment. It's always an experiment. Yeah. Well, it, it has to be. And he says, okay, well, think about how much money it would cost to change the textbooks. And I said, you know, man, you are a dinosaur because you change, <laughs> you change it on the server that all of your students are tying. You don't have to change it in a textbook. And he says, well, I've, I've got to change all my, all my class notes for 40 years that I teach with. And I said, man, that's what they're paying you to do. See the resistance. Okay, go ahead. Let's hear it. Yeah. But, well, here, here, but here's the thing. There is a new generation of young professors rising up through the ranks. And so what my friend and other uh, of his peers, of his colleagues will say, we're going to leave it to the new generation of professors to make sense of this, what he sees is a mess so the question is, and, and here's the fundamental question, there's a huge difference between taking all of the new discoveries and forcing them into a pre-existing yep. theory that's set in stone, which is what we're trying to do now. All the new DNA evidence and everything, they're trying to fit into Darwin's theory. And it's like a square peg in a round hole. If you pound hard enough, that square is going to go, but it's never going to be a good fit. And that's exactly what's happening. It's a huge difference between doing that and allowing the new discoveries to lead to the extraordinary story that they are telling. And that story, I believe, is what is going to free us from the shackles and the bondage of the fear yes. that has led to the hate that has separated us because the deep truth of our story is so extraordinary. What is it? <laughs> you keep well, saying it, that story. I'm well, like, I want to know what the story is. <laughs> I can tell you what the science is revealed about the story. Yes. I cannot tell you why it is no, as it is. No, I get is, it. But I get it. And is this rel relative to what you've been doing? Like I'm in your forbidden science class and that sure, stuff that you've sure. been doing with Nassim Haramain. Yeah. So it's this kind of, is from this area, right? It begins with our origin. Origin, exactly. And what the science is telling us very clearly is that, okay, we, you and I, our viewers and our listeners, we are what are called AMH, anatomically modern humans, is the term that's used. The science is in agreement. We appeared on Earth about 200,000 years ago, mysteriously, fully intact, fully enabled. We don't know where we came from. And we can now extract the DNA from the fossilized remains of the beings that we used to think were our ancestors. And we can compare their DNA to ours today, and that is what has revealed that we did not descend from Neanderthals. We didn't descend from Australopithecus. And, you know, Lucy, uh, Louis Leakey's, he nicknamed the fossil Lucy that he found. We didn't descend from them. As a matter of fact, we shared the earth with Neanderthal fully intact as we are today. And here's the problem with that, Colette. There is a, a corollary to Darwin's thinking that says nature never over endows. That's the corollary. And what that means right. mm -hmm. is that any form of life will only develop the features that it needs in the moment that it needs them. The problem is we appeared 200,000 years ago with so many advanced features already present we didn't necessarily even need them 200,000 years ago, but the potential was already there. Uh, light years beyond what we needed to exist. 
200,000 years ago, a brain 50% larger than our nearest primate, the neocortex with the mirror neurons and, and the extraordinary neural network of the heart that allows us to self-regulate our own biology. I mean, this is extraordinary potential. Do you think we were constructed then? Well, the DNA shows that we haven't changed. Mm -hmm. We haven't, now we have definitely evolved in consciousness. Right. And, and I want to be really clear with the listeners. I'm a degreed earth scientist. I'm a geologist, geophysicist by degree first. And I'm not denying evolution. It's a fact. I've seen I it in the fossil it. record for many forms of life. It breaks down when it comes to humans. And we have to be honest about that. So now you begin to say, okay, we showed up 200,000 years ago with these potentials. Where did those potentials come from? And this is where the DNA is showing that we are the product of extraordinary chromosome fusions and genetic insertions, what's called genetic silencing and genetic manipulations um, across multiple chromosomes that cannot happen through evolution as we know it. It can't happen through, scientists say this, they say that can't happen through evolution, number one. Number two, they all happened at the same time. They did not happen slowly, gradually over a long period of time so this is why science is stuck, because these facts, the, the timing, the, the precision of the mutations and the result, you know, us, yeah. all point, they point to some kind of intervention and they suggest some kind of intentionality underlying our existence. And science today is not equipped to deal with that because they believe, and I, and I don't think this is true, but they believe if it's not Darwin's idea, then it's got to be religion. And they're not allowing for it, anything. In between. So there's a term called directed mutations. Mm -hmm. We are the product of directed mutations. Who or what is responsible? As a scientist, I cannot say with certainty. However, now this is where it gets really interesting. In my journeys through the indigenous traditions, I have yet, Colette, in my 40, I'm almost 70 and I've been traveling for over 40 years. I have yet to see a single indigenous tradition where their culture says we're the product of lucky biology. Every one of them, every single one says that we are the product of uh, an intervention right. from a community of life that exceeds what we know in our everyday lives, that we are part of a cosmic community and that we are in a deep, deep learning process, but we've been given access to a biology that is rare. Life appears to be common in the universe. Right. It doesn't, it's not the way we expect to see it, but our potential appears to be rare. I'm gonna share two things. I have friends who are therapists in the abduction, the mm -hmm. alien abduction community. Uh-huh. Harvard researcher John Mack was among those before he died. He gave credibility to, to the phenomenon. It's not localized in America or Europe. I mean, it's all over the world. It's been happening for decades. People believe they are taken off planet, some willingly, some uh, in fear. And they're as different as they are from one another. There are common themes among all of them. And this is what John Mack and others uh, were exploring. One of those themes is that people will ask, why me? You know, why, why am I here? And why are you doing this? And one of, this is so powerful. One of the pivotal universal answers is that the beings will say, we 
in our civilization, we're at the point where you on earth are right now, a long time ago. And we made choices that allowed us to develop our technology, but we lost our biology. We lost what you have. We lost the ability for empathy and sympathy and the ability for compassion and to, to regulate your own biology, to, to create a strong immune system when you want, to awaken your longevity enzymes when you want, to create resilience when you, we lost that and we want it back. And so that's one of the reasons. And then there's another class of the abductions that has recently surfaced where the beings say that they're not from another world. They're not aliens from another planet. They are us in our future coming back and pleading, pleading with the world today because they made choices where they lost their humanness. And they're saying, we're coming back in time to ask you to honor and to preserve your humanness. Don't give away this precious gift that you take for granted and may not understand because once it's gone, you'll never get it back. Maybe both are true. Yeah, well, I think, right? and this is it. I think, I think we're at such a pivotal crossroad right now that we don't often talk about it. You know, you're going to hear this on CNN or Fox News mm -hmm, or anything. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important, Colette, that we are being inundated from multiple sources to be conscious of the choices. Transhumanism, how much of our biology are we going to give away to computer chips implanted within us or to chemicals in our blood or wires under yeah. our skin? How much of that? And once it's gone, we'll never get it back. So I wouldn't be surprised. Now, this isn't scientific. I, I can't say this as a scientist. I'm just saying it. from my personal experience. Yeah. I think it's so important that they wouldn't limit it to one source. I think from our future, I think from other worlds, they're saying you humans are so rare and you're so precious and what you've been given is so extraordinary. Please don't give it away. At least don't give it away before knowing what you're giving away. That's the purpose of the new book. That's the purpose of the course that you have. So I, that's the foundation for the question. And this is so extraordinary. I can't wait to hear more as we continue this amazing discussion on our origin story from a scientific perspective. But first, we're going to take a quick break. More with Greg Braden after these messages. We'll be right back. And we are back inside the Wooniverse with Greg Braden, having the most fascinating conversation in the world. So here's where I want to go next. We know that we are more than we know, right? That's the point. We know we are more than we know. We have been conditioned to see the world through a very specific lens, through materialist science, through the way that we've been taught, etc. But like even people like me that knows I can access consciousness outside of my physical reality. We know there's more, like I know there's more. And what you said about upregulating, you know, your immune system and to be able to turn on the longevity genes when you want, all of those things are possible is basically what you underlined. So what is it right now when at this pivotal moment in our story, in our human story, what do we really need to focus on right now? and what is possible that you're noticing, that you're seeing? Well, Colette, this, this isn't happening in a void. Right. So we all know the world changed. The world that we used to know is gone. There's a new world emerging, but it's not here yet mm -hmm. because we're creating it and we're creating it through our story. Our story 
is more than a philosophical conversation. It's more than an academic conversation. Literally, our story, we live our lives based upon our story. We solve our problems. Every relationship that we've ever chosen, every friend yeah. we've ever invited into our world every, as adults, every, every person we've ever invited into our bed is based upon the way we've been taught to think about ourselves, the way we heal our bodies, our political choices, the society that we build. It's all based, uh, the policies that we adapt, the laws that we enact, it's all based upon our story. Our story has been one of separation, mm -hmm. of powerlessness, victims that feel we need something outside of us to be successful and to be healthy. And if we maintain that story in the new world, that new world is going to reflect those beliefs. And that's the society we're going to build. The new science is telling us that we have technology that we can use to serve us, but not to become slaves to that technology. And as we begin to understand the deep truth of our own, what I am now calling soft technology, mm -hmm. we, we are highly advanced, technologically sophisticated soft technology. We're not talking about computer chips and wires and chemicals. We're talking about cell membranes and neurons mm. and the ability to shift ion potentials across those cell membranes using the tools, thought, feeling, emotion, belief, breath, focus, which are the core of our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions. They understood how to apply these things. So if we can embrace the deep truth of who we are, then that will inform the decisions that build the society that's emerging. And we have to say, what kind of world do we want for our kids? Do we want them to live in a world where they're afraid of nature, they're afraid of the sun, they're afraid of other people, mm -hmm. and they are lost in digital technology? Or do we want what we know is possible, loving, healthy uh, relationship close to the earth where technology serves us and it can be fun and useful? but it doesn't define our lives. And this is a, a big conversation that's happening right now. What do you, in your estimation, what does balance with tech look like? Because I, I have my own issues with technology, right? You know, I love it and I hate it. Right? So it's, and I, I'm always in the country and stuff. So, so what would that look like? Especially the kids, you see them, they're just fixated on their phones or whatever. What would that balance look like? Yeah. Well, here, here's what's happening. We're being moved out of that balance very quickly. There's something yeah. emerging now called the metaverse. Ugh. Some people have never heard of it. And those that do say this is absolutely frightening because the goal is to have everything in our lives digital. So every item of food, certainly us, our, our lives, our lifestyles, all the, the things that we use every day, everything is digital and it is all loaded into a digital world, a make-believe world, a virtual world. And this is happening, this isn't in the future, this is actually happening now. right now, mm -hmm. where executives are creating avatars of themselves to go into the boardroom and making multi-billion dollar decisions, and it's all happening in a, a digital platform. Mm -hmm. Young people are becoming very wealthy. I mean, millionaires mm -hmm. and billionaires overnight by selling digital real estate. I saw so, that, the digital real estate. It's crazy. Yeah, but here's where it gets really, really dicey. Young people, three, four, five years old, they wake up in the morning and they have virtual helmets that they put on and now they're looking 
at this brilliant world of of vivid colors Mm -hmm. and dynamic moving creatures that is so exciting to them. And it's setting a precedent in their nervous system, a threshold of uh, of stimulation. When they take that off, they're in their living room, man. Yeah, who wants to be? So who wants to go outside and play in the sun with your friends when you can be in this digital world? Now, to you and I, we are of an age where we remember an age when these things didn't exist and we can make a choice. But think about this, Colette. If, if you are three or four years old, vulnerable, impressionable, and this is the only world you know, why would you ever choose to live in a world that's more difficult, mm-hmm. where you have challenges of a social interaction with somebody that doesn't agree with you, why would you do that when you can live in your helmet? And that is what is happening right this minute. And there are new psychological syndromes that are have been reported in psychology journals. Who's giving their kids three and five, three to five years old these helmets? Like, do they exist? Parents that think that they're on the leading edge of tech. Right. Ugh. There's a new a new syndrome where. A family can be at the same dinner table together, but each of them are so deeply immersed in their own digital world, you know, either, you know, right. Instagram or the metaverse or whatever it is, that they're not communicating. And young people, their brains are now, the young people that do this, the brain size is smaller. They are not developing emotional coping right. skills or the communication skills for genuine, intimate human relationships. Right. There's no coherence either. There, you can't be empathetic if you're not developing those, the idea of compassion, et cetera. That's why you can be cruel, I think. I think, you know, the more you stay on your on your machine, you know, the more you think you can say anything to anybody at any time because you feel basically powerless and angry. Also, you know, this is, I've seen this as well. There's an underlying philosophy that most people, it's so deeply, you know, you've heard it said, the best way to hide something is keep it in plain sight. Mm-hmm. This philosophy is so deeply embedded into our daily life that it's often easy to overlook. And the philosophy is this, that human life, carbon-based life is flawed by nature of its existence. And by virtue of us being here, we are flawed beings. And mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a deep emotional component. It's in religion. It's in science. So, and it's a philosophy that developed in the 19th century with no technology. Mm-hmm. So the same philosophy is now continuing, but now we have the technology. They believe that this technology is fixing the flaws by weaning us from an emotional existence. They oh. say, if we, don't, if we don't have these deep emotions, you know, we're not going to have conflict. We're not going to have to worry about messy relationships you know, we have differences of opinion because the technology is taking care of that. So it's a philosophy. Where there's a lot of money behind it. There is a lot Mm -hmm. of money, a lot of big tech. The media is implicit in this because we are being inundated with a story that we are powerless, vulnerable victims of an external world. We need a savior and that savior is technology. Mm -hmm. So we're at this this powerful crossroads. See, all these things come together right now. Mm. We're at this powerful crossroad. We're being asked or maybe forced to come to terms with the deep truth of our humanness. What is our potential? 
And how can we, if we're ever going to awaken it, I can't think of a better time than right now. And so that's what the new books and the workshops and, and you're doing the same thing, Colette, my dear colleagues, you know, Bruce Lipton, yes. Joe Dispenza, Lynn McTaggart, we're all in different ways. We're working with this in different ways. Speaking of Bruce, right? You know, in his book, The Biology of Belief, he tells the story of the butterfly. Would you say it the same that, you know, he talked about a very small amount of imaginal cells that need to wake up in order to turn the caterpillar to a butterfly, that metamorphosis, that it doesn't take all of us to make this huge change that's only a concentrated small group. Are we getting there to have those imaginal cells in humanity? Do you know what I'm saying? Like we are at that choice point that you talk about in your book, Fractal Time. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, we are. And what the science is showing us, this is where we go back to tie in to what we spoke of earlier. We don't have to change the world out there Mm -hmm. because we are the world out there. And when we make those changes within ourselves, this is an an ancient adage, uh, we must become the things that we choose to experience in our lives. We must become... Mm-hmm. what it is that we want in the world around us rather than trying to impose right. our ideas in the world around us. Mathematically, this is very cool the way this works. It's a logarithmic rather than a linear experience. So what that means is there can be a lot of change percolating under the surface that's not apparent. And then all of a sudden there's an avalanche of change. A perfect example of this socially and culturally would be uh, when the the Berlin Wall came down, dividing East and West Germany. Underlying to some people, what they'll say is, man, that happened all of a sudden. It happened after President Ronald Reagan made a speech. Tear down this wall. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We all remember that. But that speech was the culmination of an undercurrent that had been going on in a movement that culminated in that. It didn't just happen. And the same thing is happening now. And as people come to terms, you know, the beauty is, Colette, we all learn differently and we don't all learn at the same rate. Mm -hmm. And that we don't all need to arrive at the same understanding in the same moment in time. This is a good thing because our diversity assures our survival. If everyone thought the same thing every moment of the same day and we all made the same decision on Monday of next week. And if it was a bad decision, <laughs> we'd be in yeah. big trouble. But that will, that will never happen. Yeah. And this is, this is our diversity. And if we can learn to accept and honor and cherish this diversity, however, there is a movement in political circles, it's in the media, trying to herd us into a group thinking where we do all think the same thing. We do all make the same decisions. And in my opinion, purely from an evolutionary point of view, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Buckminster Fuller was uh, such a hero of mine, and I wish I'd met him before he died. I didn't have the opportunity. But he said something that I saw as a kid that made tremendous sense to me. And he said, you'll never change the world by fighting against the things you do not like. Mm -hmm. He said, if you want to change the world, find a new model that makes the old way obsolete and people will follow the new model and the old model collapses. So we don't have to fight back. We can simply choose a a new way of doing our finances, new way of doing our economics. Blockchain technology is allowing that new ways of creating health in our lives because the healthcare system is so broken, not just in our country, in the U.S., but in in the world. Mm -hmm. Taking more responsibility, and that's frightening 
until you understand the ability to self-regulate. And then there's a freedom that comes from that. We have wonderful technology for health when we need it. Nine times out of 10, it's an inside job. We're we are the ones that are creating the problems and we're the ones, we are the medicine cabinets. We can fix those problems. So, and that's what Bruce talks about. And, uh, you know, Lynn McTaggart has done the intention yeah. experiments yeah. around that. Yeah, so this is, it's a really powerful and pivotal crossroad where we are right now. You're so brilliant. I, I love listening to you. And oh, so what I'd love to do is to review just a few tools sure. that people could use. Because right now, I'm sure everybody listening to this is just like wanting to buy all your books right now and sign up right now. But I know you have some tools that, that can really work for people. So what are those tools? Well, the, you know, the tools vary. I've recently released a course that was called Radical Resilience. And uh, I'm going to use this to talk about the tools. Perfect. When I was a kid growing up in the 50s, resilience meant suck it up and get over it if you have a bad day. That was resilience. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now through the Stockholm Resilience Institute, uh, new studies are revealing five domains of human resilience that must be addressed for true resilience, which we all need in our lives. It begins with physiological resilience. If you don't have a body, it's really hard <laughs> to yeah. have the, the other forms of resilience. So physiological resilience, a lot of us know about this. It's, um, it is a, a conscious way of living. How do you nourish your body? So uh, nutrition is certainly a part of that. Mm -hmm. But one of the greatest degrees of nutrition is not from a supplement or from food. It's from the emotional nutrition that we feed our bodies. Mm -hmm. And to create that, what we now know is that our heart and our brain are two separate organs, but they function as a single system. There are neural networks in the heart and in the brain that communicate, and we can enhance that communication, optimize that communication with techniques like meditation, right. uh, like heart-brain coherence that we have talked about in other programs mm -hmm. and all my books, where we harmonize the heart and the brain to an optimum signal of 0.1 hertz. It brings balance and optimizes the entire body within, but also this optimization extends beyond our bodies into the world around us, into our families, the workplace, the office place, the community is scientifically documented through studies where people are trained to do this. The Institute of Heart Math mm -hmm. is one of the, uh, the pioneers, the pioneer in developing the techniques. So physiological resilience. Uh, but then there is psychological resilience that is part of this. I'm fascinated by hostage situations. Mm -hmm. And one of the most uh, well-known is Terry Anderson, who was a, the Associated Press Bureau Chief in Beirut, Lebanon, when he was abducted by uh, Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. And he was held for almost seven years, over right around 20, almost oh, 2,500. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 2,500 days. And when he was released, the first questions that the reporters asked, he, he was in amazingly good condition. They said, how did you do it? And he outlined a, a discipline, a psychological discipline where he gave, uh, he broke down the day into routines. But a big part of it was the belief. He honestly believed that he was more valuable alive than dead and that he would see his family. And that, that was a powerful element of the psychological resilience. Um, spiritual resilience. When we talk about spirituality on its deepest level, it's all about relationships with ourself, with one another, with the earth, with the cosmos, with God, with the future, with the past. 
And one of the most powerful principles in spiritual resilience is the meaning and the significance that we give to our lives. We each have to feel that our lives have a purpose. Yeah. And we see this when people are dedicated to their careers and then they retire at the age of you know, 62 or 65 and they, they have no other identity and their lives typically deteriorate quickly. Mm-hmm. They can, they don't have to, yep. but they can because the meaning has disappeared from their lives. There's mental resilience where we have the opportunity to structure our lives and, and create what we call safe failure. Safe failure is an engineering term, and I love it because it means that we're not afraid to try something new and there's a threshold. We're, we're okay if things go wrong up to this point. Right. So if you wanted to try safe failure in your finances, for example, and invest in something that's new, right? you don't want to put the, the whole farm in there, nope. but you take an amount and if you lose it, that's safe failure. But if, you, if you're right you're going to benefit tremendously. So mental resilience, Mm -hmm. I'm beating around the bush here. One of the best examples (laughs) of of that was, uh, you probably remember the hiker that was hiking in Utah that fell into a crevice. No one knew he was there. Nobody found him. And the only way to survive was for him to sever his own arm that was pinned under the rock. There was a film made of that. There was a film. There were books. Yes. And I use that in the course as an example. The process he went through was the mental resilience. So we have mental resilience, psychological resilience, emotional resilience. You know, a big part of emotional resilience is something called hope theory. This is a new psychological term where hope is more than wishful thinking. Hope is actually broken down into the vision of what's possible as well as the strategy to get to what's possible. And there, uh, when we do our, our live programs, people go through a process where they can actually quantify where they are in the strategy and where they are in the vision to know if they it maybe need some more work in the vision. They aren't clear on the vision. You know, if you aren't clear what you want, you can have the best strategy in the world, but how do you know where you're going? Right. Or, or vice versa. You got great ideas, but you can't seem to get, get the boat, you know, into the water. And, mm-hmm. and so all of these things are key in what we're talking about. But the, the whole point is that we're wired for success. We're wired to thrive. We're wired for Mm self-regulation. And once we begin to embrace that deep truth, for some people, it sounds scary because it means there's a personal responsibility. It's only scary until the first time they prove to themselves that by thinking and living a little differently, their immune system kicks up, you know, super immune system. And they think, wow, how come I haven't done this all my life? Or the resilience we're all stressed. Everybody is stressed in the world right now. And stress is a part of life, but our ability to create resilience, we can shift through any time in our lives. And heart rate variability, HRV, the time from one heartbeat to the next, the more variable that is, the greater resilience we have to change. When we're young, we have a lot of variability. As we age, typically it decreases. By harmonizing the heart and the brain, we increase heart rate variability and therefore give ourselves greater resilience. So I'm, I'm just covering these very, very quickly at a high level so that people know we have this vast repertoire. Uh, it's a smorgasbord of tools and everyone's different. And some are more drawn to some than others, but they're all available to us when we choose. Oh, I love this. And, uh, you know, I want to say two words, which is thank you to you. I mean, 
It's actually my mantra. Also, every day I start with meditating on just that. Thank you. Just thank you. No matter what, it's just thank you. And I feel like you are, I'm holding you in my heart and saying thank you right now too. And I just am so thrilled that you've joined us today. Greg Braden, this was so amazing and inspiring. So please let our listeners or viewers know where can people find you? Can they still join Forbidden Science? That's the class I'm in. Or is there anything else they could take? The resilience class? Like what can they do right now? Yeah, the best way to reach me is through our website, www.gregbraden.com. It's Greg with two Gs, G-R-E-G-G-B-R-A-D-E-N.com. Uh, as far as the course, the course was hosted by a, a, a wonderful organization called Humanities Team. And I honestly don't know, Colette, where they are in terms of enrollments and things like that. It's, it's not done through my office, but thank you for, yeah, for your it. interest and, and your support. <laughs> yeah. And when's your new book coming out? The new book will cover a lot of things we talked about today. It is a Hay House book. If I deliver it when I promised uh, this spring, it should be out before the end of this year or this fall. Oh, so exciting. That's great. That's that's gregbraden.com. Thank you, Greg. I love you so much. This has been a pleasure having you here. I can hardly wait to invite you back when your book is out because then we're going to get really deep into that content. Thank you. Greg and Colette, part two. Greg uh, and Colette, so part two. That's love right. You too, Thanks for being Inside the Wooniverse. What a great conversation with Greg. And what did we learn? Well, age-old questions like who are we and where did we come from are still being answered by science. And we don't know all the answers. And that's what's so important. And this conversation reminds us all to be curious as the truth continues to be revealed. As Greg says, the deep truth of who we are and who we are becoming is still as yet unfolding. Thank you for joining us on Inside the Wooniverse. I'm Colette Baron reed Until next time, be well. Time to share the way we love Become the ones we're dreaming of You've been listening to Inside the Wooniverse with Colette Baron reed This episode was recorded at Universal Network Studio by Chris Dupuy. A special thanks to our executive producer, Connie Deletti, and our producer and story editor, Julie Fink. Audio post and supervision by Michael Seifert and David Shaw at Sumo Recording. Original music written and performed by Michael Seifert. Original music, Truth Begins, by Colette Baron-Reed and Eric Ross. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or leave us a rating on our Spotify show page. Do you have a question about something you've heard here today for Colette? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at colettebaronreed.com and your question could appear on a future episode. If you love what you've heard here today, we have so much more to offer. You can access our bonus content, keep up to date with new episode releases, featured guests, and prize giveaways, all by clicking on the link in our description or by visiting us at itwpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us next time Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine.